join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, as we look into your word, pray that our eyes would see and our ears would hear all that you want to teach us. Would you bless this time together in your name? Amen. On a beautiful uh, fall day uh, this past year, Jessica and I surprised the girls that we would stop our school lessons early and take them to a new park. So they shoved the last of their chicken nuggets into their mouths and we headed off. And it seemed like every family in Mercer County also cut short school that day as there were lots and lots of people at the park. And I met a man there who was with his young daughter. His name was Rob. After a long, successful career in finance, he moved into the area a few years ago. He was in his 50s, recently married. He volunteered with his time, and he gave to local charities. I told him what I did, and surprisingly, he didn't get an urgent text message that had to take him away from our conversation. It's amazing. When you tell people you are a pastor, it's like instantly they have something that comes up they have to take care of. It's even worse if you tell them that you're a preacher. He said to me, you know, church is a great thing, but I find that for the most part, I'm more moral than most Christians I know. And I live a pretty good life without too much involvement. On another occasion, I struck up a conversation with Lisa. She was probably in her late 20s or early 30s, and like many during the pandemic, she was juggling her job and parenting and teaching. And church was something she attended while she was growing up, but with the demands and stress of her life, she told me that all she can hope for is just a few minutes of quiet to attend her virtual yoga class once a week so that she could put her mind at ease. I think that a lot of us know people like Rob and Lisa. They are our neighbors, and they are our friends. Plus or minus a few biographical details, we attend work meetings or attend classes with Rob's and Lisa's. I'm not sure, but if I were to dig just a little deeper, I think they would say something like this about the Christian faith. Sure, Christianity makes a lot of sense for the down and out, it can help people cope and boost their spirits, especially those who are socially disadvantaged. But I know right from wrong. I have a strong connection to my values, and on the whole, I make good decisions in life. I contribute to society in meaningful ways, and unless Christianity can make me a better, more efficient manager in my day-to-day -day life, why exactly do I need it? To be honest, I think, as followers of Jesus, we might have a similar question on some days. What Paul describes in our passage today may have been good uh, to correct the living in a time and in a world where there was temple prostitution or brutal violence or where the virtues of love and gentleness were not highly esteemed, but we know better now. Maybe Christianity helped us get to a to a more civil and decent society. But now we know how to be good. And we know how to be healthy. And for the most part, we know how to be happy without God. We have made a lot of advances for sure. But for all the advances we've made, they never seem to keep up with our current troubles. 
unemployment, suicide rates, depression, anxiety, racial tension. The pandemic has shown us we have a long way to go. Our advances also don't seem to penetrate deep enough to get to the source of where our troubles start, and that's the human heart. We may not see it on people's faces, but there is a restless conflict within each of us. The pandemic did not make us conflicted. It simply unmuted the troubles that have been playing in the background in all of our lives this whole time. So whether you are a Christian or not, whether you feel that your life is pretty well put together or not, in these verses, the Apostle Paul provides an eye-opening assessment about our common condition and the difference that knowing Jesus Christ makes, not just in his day, but in ours as well. The title for our sermon today is From Ruin to Renewal. That's the journey our text takes us on. So first we will start with our ruin. Outside of God's grace shown in Jesus Christ, the human condition is in a condition of ruin. The believers in Ephesus are Gentiles, and their entire predicament in life without Jesus was hopeless. And we saw this theme back in chapter 2 in two places. Imagine driving a car through a snowstorm, barely able to see, or only able to see just a few feet in front of you. It's difficult, you think, but at least I'm not sliding around. So you decide to pick up speed. Visibility is so low that you miss a sign that says, Danger Ahead. This was the Ephesians before they believed in Jesus Christ. Thinking they were picking up speed on the way home, they were actually accelerating right into danger. But thankfully, Christ intervened in their lives before it was too late. And like your best friend at school or someone who cares deeply about you, Paul sees them sliding back. And he tells them, he insists, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Last week, Paul puts this point positively, we saw. He says, walk worthily of the calling. And this week, we get the other side of it. Don't walk back. Don't fall back into the ways of the Gentiles. Now, this statement is curious. Don't live like the Gentiles. But they are Gentiles. These Ephesians made a clean break with Gentile culture, how they think, how they feel, how they behave. You're done with that, Paul says. But don't go back to your pre-Christian way of living. Well, what about for us? Is Paul's word of caution relevant to us for a culture that has been shaped by Christianity? What he have said to us today, don't go back into your American way of life in the same way he said to the Ephesians, no longer walk as Gentiles. At the end of the Civil War, after taking account of all the lives that were lost on both sides, in the name of defending an inhumane institution and the sacrifice it took to end it, Ulysses S. Grant remarked, how could this war have happened in a civilized, and from his perspective, a Christian nation? How could this have happened? The presence of church buildings all around us, 
or having the majority of people identify as Christian does not do away with the need for gospel renewal. To be renewed by the gospel means all our allegiances are subject to Jesus Christ. Even those allegiances that have made room for Christianity, they don't get special treatment under his lordship. There is no culture that has the gospel in its default settings. Jesus Christ's kingdom is not of this world. All of us need renewal. Christian marriages, Christian families, Christian churches, Christian schools, all of us need renewal. So maybe you're listening to this and you've been a Christian for a while, or maybe you're listening to this and you're just considering Christianity. What Paul says here still applies to our culture, still applies to each of us. So notice where the ruin starts. Well, like how many of our problems start, and that's with our mindset. He identifies three dimensions here. Futility of thinking, darkened understanding, and ignorance. First, he talks about futility of thinking, entertaining ideas that go nowhere, going back to thinking patterns that have never worked in the first place. Sometimes these thinking patterns are obvious. Drinking to get rid of a painful memory, lying to get out of a situation that only delays consequences, cheating on taxes. These are obvious bad decisions. But even subtle thinking patterns affect us and the unity of the body. Like when we're struggling and we don't let other believers know that we're struggling because we're trying to maintain an image, we're relying on the thinking pattern of self-reliance. Or like how we minimize how long work hours impact a family. We think that productivity is better than presence with our family members. What are the examples in your life where you're tempted to fall back into futile thinking patterns? What patterns affect your connection to your family and to fellow believers in Jesus Christ? You know, the hard thing is, is that many times we know better, and we know that we know better. But these patterns are like strong magnets that keep pulling us back. Well, why is that? It's not a matter of logic. It's a matter of lawlessness. The key to understand why we fall back so easily is idol worship. Paul talks about a similar theme in Romans 1. He says that those who are outside of Jesus, those folks, they became futile in their thinking and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Futility is married to idolatry. During childhood, every year around Christmas, I would have the same recurring dream. I, would be, I sat by the tree, and my older brother was there, and he would hand me presents. And as I held the presents, I felt so excited that soon I'd be getting the video game I hoped for all year round. But when I tore the wrapping paper off and opened the box... There was nothing in it. And then my brother chuckled and said, just kidding, here you go. And he handed me another present. I tore the wrapping paper off, and this time I opened the box, 
and nothing again. And the worst part about it was that this scene would play itself over and over and over again. And I knew that what I wanted would never be in the box, yet I couldn't stop myself from wanting it to be there. And that is the experience of idolatry. Searching for what you deeply hope for in empty boxes. Well, Paul goes on. He says that the mindset gets darkened. We are alienated from God due to ignorance. No matter how many times you flip a broken light switch in the dark, you will never get light. It's futility and darkness all at the same time. And you and I and every person is born into a condition of both futility and darkness. Paul says in Colossians, that Jesus Christ has transferred those who believe in him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It doesn't matter what you know. When you're groping in the dark, it's the experience of ignorance. And this is why, from a Christian perspective, this is why doing good deeds or having good motives doesn't solve our ruined condition. It's because even if we have them, or even if we do them, we're still doing them in enemy territory. As long as we are in the kingdom of darkness, our good deeds will never shine any light. Futile, darkened, ignorant, apart from God. The prophet Isaiah sums up this mindset perfectly. He says in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, if that's our mindsets by nature, what happens if this mindset takes root in our hearts? Well, that's exactly what Paul describes next. He says we have callousness of heart. We are dead in our feeling towards others and especially to those who are hurting Last week, we saw Paul say, uh, the, uh, say to the believers that they ought to live with all humility and gentleness with patience and to bear with one another in love. A callous person has no desire to live like that. Jesus said, a bruised reed he will not break, or a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A callous person is without feeling towards those who are bruised reeds or smoldering wicks around them. But it's not that callous people are without feeling altogether. They have plenty of it for themselves and for their own desires. And no matter the cost, they plunge head first into their sexual desires. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Stop at the eyes, because anyone who looks at another person lustfully has committed adultery in their hearts. The callous person just gets started with their eyes and then uses their body to satisfy their sexual appetite without regards to God's law or will or the good of the people involved. According to the scriptures, fallen expressions of human sexual practice are indicators of a fallen human condition. Why? Because they involve the entire person in the act, mind, heart, body, and they proceed from a motive of self-gratification, and they are insatiable. 
And that is perhaps why, at the culmination of this discussion, Paul refers to sensuality and impurity here. It's an entire engagement of life in what is ultimately a ruined condition. So we've described this ruined condition in our minds and in our hearts and in our body. And if you are a Christian, although by God's grace through faith, this is no longer your condition, you still struggle with it. At least I know I do. There are days in which you do not feel spiritually alive and you long for renewal. And if you are listening to this today and you have not turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, this condition isn't just something you're tempted to fall into. This is your condition. And just like ruins you might see on an excursion, you may see some pillars that stand up here and there in your life, some good deeds. But your life is far from the connection and meaning you long for because you're disconnected from your creator through Jesus Christ. There's a longing for renewal you have. Well, thankfully, that's where Paul takes us next. He brings us to renewal. And he first talks about the source of our renewal and then its steps. So first, the source here in verses 20 and 21 He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus. Well, if our ruin started in the mind, then the starting place of Christ's renewal is in our mind as well. Transformation of the mind is central to Christian renewal. How do we learn Christ? Well, we learn Christ through taking in of Scripture receiving it with meekness and with joy, memorizing it, sharing it with others, sitting under the preaching of the word, studying it in groups. God's word is central to our renewal as Christians. Our minds are also renewed through praying. When we praise God's name, when we confess our sins, when we thank him for our blessings, and we bring our needs and the needs of others before him, we are renewed when we pray together. But it's vitally important in the context that Paul is having this discussion here that we understand that our renewal is a corporate reality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. We cannot have our minds renewed without each other in the body. A paraphrase of Romans 12.2 puts this uh, well. J.B. Phillips writes, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. I just love that image. You know, if I look at the Play-Doh figures that my kids leave on the table, I could always tell which daughter shaped each mold. Their personality, their creativity stand out in their molds. And the same is true when Jesus Christ gets a hold of each of us and shapes our thinking We no longer resemble the old molds of thinking, but our minds are shaped by Christ's hands. We are shaped by him as we actively obey him. Think about this in terms of two faculties of our minds. One is our memories. Christ shapes our memories. 
some of the memories that we relished in, now that we are in Christ, we regret. But we do not despair, because Christ redeems our worst choices, and even as we look back at those painful memories, we can still see that he was there upholding us. Some of our other memories, we can look back and see how God's guiding hand was there. He upheld us when we were down. When we were in need, he provided. Although we didn't call to him by name, deep down in our hearts, we, set, we, thought, we sensed that we were connecting to him. And then along the way, we came to meet him in Jesus Christ. We could look back at many parts of our lives before we came to Christ and say, Christ was there for me, even though I did not know him. But Christ also shapes our values. In the past, we did anything to get ahead. But because of Jesus Christ, we have esteem for others now. We look back at conflicts, and rather than blame other people, we understand our part in it and ask for forgiveness and repent of our sins. A while back when the BP oil spill happened in the Gulf Coast, Dallas Willard, a philosopher and Christian teacher, made this point. He, said, he, he made this point. He said, if Christians were operating that oil rig, would that oil spill have happened? And his point was this, that even if that Christians were operating, even if Christians were operating that oil rig, and the oil spill happened, they would have been the first to repent of it. You see, a sign of Christ's renewal in us is not that we don't make any mistakes or that we don't mess up here and there. It's oftentimes that we are the first to admit our mistakes to one another. And that, too, is a sign of Christ's work in our minds. Well, what's truly amazing about Christ's uh, Christ renewal in our minds is that even as our minds start to weaken or fade away because of conditions like dementia or Alzheimer's, oftentimes Christ's work is still evident in our thinking. Tori Ten Boom, uh, Corey Ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor, writes this about her mom as she was passing away from dementia. She says, Mother's love had always been the kind that acted itself out with soup pot and sewing baskets. But now dementia had taken these things away. She sat in her chair at the window and loved us. She loved the people she saw on the street and beyond. Her love took in the city, the land of Holland, the world. And so I learned that love is larger than the walls which shut it in. This is how deeply Christ can shape our minds, deeper than even our diseases can touch. So Christ is the source of our renewal. But what are those steps to renewal? The image Paul provides here is one of taking off clothes and putting on new ones. We are putting off the old ways of living, that old ruinous pattern we discussed earlier. And Jesus Christ put that dead way of living to death on the cross. Romans 6.6 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So apart from Christ, we were dead to life. And in Christ, death has died in us. Our old nature 
has been defeated. So, whereas before, where denying ourselves felt like death, now self-denial is a joy because it makes room for Jesus Christ and his spirit. Before, we thought that doing our best to believe in God is what saved us or what is saving us. But now we can say in freedom, God's grace has saved me and God's grace is what keeps me. That old way of thinking is gone. And instead, we put on a new way. We have a new nature. Notice that Paul says that the new self is created after the likeness of God. Do you ever think life wasn't supposed to be this way? It shouldn't be this hard or the simple matter shouldn't be so complicated? If you have said that, whether you're a Christian or not, you are absolutely right. Saying goodbye to loved ones during the holidays, having conflicts with family members, being mistreated at work, it wasn't supposed to be this way. You're absolutely right. We all contribute to the brokenness of this world, but it is also true that we inherited the brokenness as well. And the reason you long for something better is because you were created for something more. That God that we had a vague sense of at times was the God that humanity had close friendship with at the beginning of the world. And just as when your parents made bad decisions that impacted the whole family, so the first couple that made decisions affected everyone that came from them. Originally, this image of God was expressed in our unity with one another and with God. But because of our first parents' bad decisions, that image in all of us was cracked. And we need that image to be restored, never to be broken again. And God restored that perfect image in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you admit that you are broken and you give your life to him, he will make your life new. He is a master craftsman. And over time, as you live your life with him, you will see more and more of that renewed image. Near the end of the magician's nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, an unrefined, ragged taxi cab driver gets face to face with Aslan the lion, who is the king of Narnia. And although this taxi cab driver is just getting to know the king of Narnia, he feels like in meeting him, he always knew him. And as he talks to Aslan, those unrefined parts of him start to fade away. And he appears to get younger and more renewed in his appearance. He's not so well educated, not so well deserving of things. But Aslan makes him and his wife the king and queen of Narnia. And they are tasked to take care of this new land in a way that honors the rightful king. We are broken and unrefined in many ways. But when Jesus Christ, when we believe in him, when he enters into our, in, into our lives, he renews us. And he gives us the grace to live faithfully to his call. We may not need the church to contribute to society, 
but we do if we want to make lasting contribution to the saving purposes that God has for this creation. We may just want to reduce our desires to just manage our lives. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with wanting God to help you to manage your life. But God wants us to be part of the renewal of his creation. Something much bigger and something much better. And in the end, what we are given is renewal and not ruin. And renewal is the final word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.